Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Title of the message is, Are You Content or Covetous? Uh, Those are themes that are going to come out of our text today. The Bible speaks much about the danger of loving money and finding our confidence in money. In fact, experts tell us that the average person thinks about money 50% of the time. How to get it, how to save it, how to spend it. That's amazing. It's a startling statistic. Um, How do you personally view money? Um, That's something to ask yourself. Um, Is it a means in which you can glorify God, or is it something that you can sometimes put a little more confidence in than what you should? It's important to understand that money in and of itself is not necessarily bad, is it? Very clearly in Scripture that's taught. Money is not necessarily bad. In fact, in Deuteronomy it says, it is the Lord God who gives you the power to make wealth. And so God has enabled us to be able to make some type of living, to make some type of wealth. So money is not necessarily bad. Nevertheless, we must never see confidence in money and to put our security in our bank accounts and in our money. In fact, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We must submit to God's plan no matter what he has for us in this life. Some of us may be at a certain level and suddenly all of that is taken away. A lot of us have felt this wealth effect being sucked out with the recent um, economic crisis that we're experiencing in this land. The text, at least in verse 10, it says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. This text has been misunderstood, I think, a lot. Um, The King James doesn't have all sorts. It's just love of money is the root of all evil. We know that that's not true. It is the root of all sorts of evil, as the NAS translators translate it. Money is kind of like a gun. There's nothing wrong with a gun necessarily, right? A gun can be used for good purposes, protecting the innocent, but it could also be used for wicked purposes, taking the life of the innocent. And so too, money per se is not bad, but it's your attitude towards it. And we're talking about really the sin of greed deep down in our hearts and and discontent. Of course, today in March 2009, the world is in an economic crisis. The Dow hits, I think, 6,400 this last week. Levels not seen in 12 or 13 years. For some of you, that's before you knew what the Dow was. We're talking a major suck out of wealth, not to mention the housing crisis, where most houses are worth 30, 40, 50% less than what they were worth four years ago. It is amazing. And how did we get into that mess? Well, there's a number of reasons, but I submit to you, largely, it's from greed and covetousness. Greedy politicians, greedy bankers, greedy investors that just have to have a little bit more. As I said, most of us have seen our our 401ks or our savings accounts or stocks or whatever just cut in half or worse. In fact, the average American family has fallen into some type of in the last several years has fallen into this idea of of having all this wealth because my house keeps going up 30% per year and spending far more than what they make. And now, of course, all of the debt and bankruptcies and defaults and foreclosures on homes is what we see. 
There's been such a level of debt created that many will never be able to pay it back. And why? Why all this debt? It's largely because of discontent and wanting just a little bit more. Wanting just a little bit more. And, 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 and we can be influenced by advertising. And some of you children, you can be influenced by advertising and by peer pressure. The newest and greatest video game that comes down the pike. The next new toy that comes down. And, and, and we're enticed and we suddenly find ourselves thinking about these things. And then we go after them to secure them. Most of all, greed for more material possessions. And that really reveals a heart issue. There's something wrong with the heart when we find ourselves thinking like this. We forget that we're but pilgrims passing through in this land. Discontent always wants something more. It always thinks about what it does not have. Think about that for a minute. It always wants something more. And it thinks about what it does not have. Rather than enjoying the wealth that we have in Christ, as our brother Deepu has uh, submitted to us in his leading of worship today, and rather than being content with these basic things of life, life, as we see in our text, we're thinking about what we do not have, and then suddenly the seeds of discontent begin to take root. So let's read the text. 1 Timothy 6. We'll be looking today at verses 6 to 10. The Word of God says, But godliness actually is a means of great game when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's go to the Lord and ask His help once again. Our Father in Heaven, we do ask that You would give us understanding from Your Word this day. Lord, we pray that You would send the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be here examining our hearts Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would have the attitude that David did in Psalm 139, search me, O God. And Lord, could it be that some of us have seeds of discontent and greed that perhaps we don't even know about or that have not even fully manifested themselves? Lord, bring that to the surface. Give us grace to uproot these things as we would look to Christ in faith and being satisfied with Him. Help us during this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll remember the context. Last week we looked at verses 3 and 5 and we talked about greedy heretics, right? We talked about these men who advocate a different doctrine, it says, rather than the sound words uh, that had been set forth uh, throughout this letter. And then in verse 5 it says, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they suppose that being in this role is a means of financial benefit and gain. We likened heresy to something of a, of a plague, the worst plague that's ever hit, and a very dangerous thing to, to stay away from. The twisted motives of these people is that they're conceited, they understand nothing, and that they're in it for the money. And so, of course, this text is very closely related to that, where Paul begins, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. The true godly man is not concerned with becoming rich. 
He has riches in Christ, which exceeds the value of all earthly riches. We, we, we need to have this pilgrim mentality. How does that song go? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's the attitude that we need to have as Christians in this life. This life is but a vapor. And we're, we will stand before God very soon. So we'll see today that we need perspective on what is really important in this life. We need to uproot these seeds of, of greed and covetousness. And we must long all the more for Christ. So today we're going to consider this text under two simple headings. The key to contentment. And secondly, longing to get rich will ruin and destroy you. So first of all, the key to contentment. And the key from our text is very plain here. The key is perspective. It's remembering that we're pilgrims, remembering that this life is temporary, that, we will, that eternity is what is real, and then a striving after godliness. And so, have you experienced the great gain of godliness? Paul says here in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of, and he says, great gain, right? Not just gain, but great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, he has already told us that. If you remember back in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, just back one page, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of this present life and also the one to come. This, the idea is that having a true devotion to God, isn't that what godliness means? It's piety. It's devotion to God. And having a true devotion to God, having His purposes in view all the time, having His cause and wanting Him to be glorified with all that we do is vital. John Calvin says that it is sufficiently great gain to us because though, because through it, we become not only heirs of the world, but we are enabled to enjoy Christ and all of His riches. Wonderful quote. So we need an eternal perspective. It's vital, and that's what we'll get to in verse 7. But let's ask the question, first of all, what is contentment? Contentment, the word that is used here, means self-sufficiency, or in a sense, independence. That's what the word literally means. And speaking externally, it's a state of having adequate sufficiency, um, to us, in fact, the only other New Testament occurrence is 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Familiar text, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance in every good deed. But here it's speaking of the internal state. It's speaking of being content with one's circumstances, uh, self-sufficiency in that light. Of course, as Christians, we know that our sufficiency ultimately comes from where? It comes from God. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, what would Paul say? He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We find our satisfaction in Him. Being His child, being adopted into His family, living the Christian life, finding joy and communing with Him, feasting from His Word, feasting, communing with Him through prayer. Jeremiah Burroughs, who I commend to you, his great book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this. He described contentment as a work of the Spirit indoors. 
See, it's not, ex- it's not outside. It's not what we have. It's not our possessions. It's a work of the Spirit on the inside of man. He later said, I find sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. That's where we need to look for satisfaction in this life. This world will let you down. Your possessions will let you down. The new toy may have a buzz for a short amount of time, but ultimately it's going to become old someday and it's not going to. But Christ will never let you down as you find your satisfaction in Him. In fact, the godly man is not like the fool that we read of earlier that says, let me tear down my barns and build bigger barns so I can sit back and say, take your ease. Godly man is not about amassing earthly possessions. In fact, contentment is something that must be learned. That's what Paul says in Philippians. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Now, how do you learn this? You learn this in the school of Christ. You learn this from walking with Him. First of all, it's recognizing that God owns everything. Our brother read from that passage earlier, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We need to cultivate deep within ourselves a thankful heart. We need to have that thankful spirit that He is the one that has given us everything. We need to distinguish and have wisdom to distinguish the difference between a want and a need. And all too often our wants end up over in the need list and there's this big list. We need to distinguish what do we really need in this life. We need to be committed to spend less than what we bring in with our income, whatever level that is. And lastly, we learn contentment when we find the joy of giving. The joy of supporting the local church. The joy of helping a brother in need, a sister in need. The joy of being generous. There is such great joy that comes from that and such satisfaction. Ultimately, our satisfaction comes as we, as we realize that we're a child of God, with lavished with all of the riches and spiritual riches that we have in Christ. And then we're able to do these things and to be generous because it's a natural, spontaneous thing that comes from our hearts and our renewed nature as well. In verse 7, he says, But we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You can't take your wealth when you, with you when you die. It's very clear here. We have brought, what? Nothing into this world. And you will take nothing out of it. And in fact, nothing's at the very beginning of the sentence for emphasis. It's nothing that you have brought into this world and you will take nothing out of it. I've already quoted Job, naked have I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. We brought nothing into this world except for your birthday suit. And that's all you will take out of it. The idea of carrying out, that, that can we carry anything out of this world is, is the same word that's used of Ananias and Sapphira when they plopped on the floor after they lied to the Holy Spirit and the men carried them out. It's the same idea. You will not carry anything out of this world to take into eternity with you. Let me try to illustrate it like this, at least for those that in this life think that amassing riches, somehow they're going to gain something. Suppose someone passes empty-handed through the turnstiles of a big city art museum. 
There's nothing in his hands. And as he's walking around, he begins taking pieces of art down and carrying them under his arms. And he's walking around, carrying them around. And you come up to him and you say, what are you doing? He says, I'm becoming an art collector. Can't you see? And he thinks himself to be so important. But you say, but they're not really yours. And besides, they'll never let you out of here with those. You have, you'll have to go out just like you came in. And then he answers again, sure, they're mine. I've got them under my arm. People see me and they think I'm an important art dealer in the hallways. And I don't want to bother myself with thoughts of leaving. Don't ruin my fun. You'd call that man a fool. And that's really what it's like in this life. We're amassing all of these things. And of course, they're mine. And look at all this stuff that I have. And the reality is you will not take that with you. It stays at the turnstile. It stays in the art museum. It stays in this world. You can't take your possessions with you. The love of money focuses so much on the temporal, doesn't it? It focuses so much on the here and now. Finding your pleasure in the new sports car, the new whatever. It's the here and the now. We need to have this pilgrim mentality. We will take nothing out of this world. In fact, the psalmist says, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. He carries none of it away. I've met several people, as I'm sure you have as well, maybe even family members, who become very old and they still have that mentality of a miser. And they might be in their 80s and they're near the end of their life, clearly, you know, maybe another 10 or 20 years. But it's this miser mentality, thinking that somehow I can't let this go, but ultimately they will let it go. I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but very rarely do you see a Mayflower moving truck sitting in front of the funeral parlor with all the possessions going to the graveside. You don't see that. You don't see the U-Haul trailer packed full of all the possessions that this person has amassed. No, they just get handed down to somebody else. Well, Paul goes on in verse 8, and he says, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Most of us have more than enough to be content. The text here says if we have what? Food and covering. It's literally food and clothing, but the word can mean shelter as well. So some type of shelter, clothing, and some basic food. With these, we shall be content. The idea that Paul is pressing here is living a life of simplicity, Being content with that. And the Bible does not teach some vow of poverty, by the way, as some would teach, that you just get, you give it all away and you just become poor and you live in a commune or whatever. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the idea is here is being content with the simple things of life, being content with those. And Paul uses a different word here for content, but it's very similar in meaning. It's the idea of being satisfied. And so we see the great gain, the goal here of the great gain of godliness and being uh, satisfied with the simple things in this life because the goal of your life now has come to, to glorify God in, in, in every possible way that you can. To glorify Him with all that you have. Whatever possessions you own, you own them temporarily. When my wife and I um, bought the house we're in the process of still buying it, but it's almost 11 years ago, 
we prayed and said, Lord, this is your house. It's not our house. And we want to use it for your glory. We want to offer hospitality to strangers. We want to have people in our house. That's the mentality that we must have. Because we don't really own anything. (laughs) Even your own children you don't own. They're on loan to you for a season. We don't own anything. God owns it all. And the idea here of being content with the simple things. Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer is all about? We're studying that in our home fellowship group. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us the basic things, Lord, the things just enough for today. And, and as I said, most of us have so much more than enough. So much we have abundance beyond what is normal in this world. We are so rich as Americans compared to the rest of this world. Westminster Shorter Catechism, in conjunction with the fourth petition, says this, We pray of God's free gift that we may have a competent portions of the good things in this life. Just a basic portion. Just a, exactly what God has suited and predestined for us to have, that we might have a, just a portion of that. Not a huge abundance. Jeremiah Burroughs, quoting him once again, he says, A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented in any low condition that he may have in this world. And yet he cannot be satisfied with all the enjoyment with the enjoyment of all of the world. See, he's contented with, with, with very, very little, a low condition, and he will never find satisfaction with all the abundance of what the world has to offer. You see, the world is deceived into thinking that the secret of contentment is having more of what you already have. Isn't that a deception? Isn't that a lie of the devil? Well, I'll be content if I get to here, or I have this, or one, two more zeros in the retirement account, or whatever. J.D. Rockefeller, and I've read several of these men who have become rich, and it's striking how, um, how their lives end. He says, this is Rockefeller, I have made my millions, but they have not brought me happiness. Um, study, there's been studies that have been done about lottery winners that... Simple couple, farmers maybe, and they win, you know, a hundred million dollars, and then down the road there's divorce, there's disappointment, there's unhappiness, there's study after study of these where their lives end in ruin because they think that somehow money is going to bring them happiness. You see, contentment is really kind of like math. There's a mathematical thing here, and you children need to try to capture this. There's a mathematical lesson to be had. Contentment does not come by adding to your circumstances, but it comes by subtracting from your desires. You see, we have all of these lusts, all of these desires, all of these things that we want. We must subtract from those and and get the idea out of our head that contentment is adding to our circumstances. The root of all contentment is when your desires are brought down to what your circumstances already are. The root of all contentment, as I said, is really to find your satisfaction in God and the riches that we have in Christ. Well, let's move on. We've seen something of the key to contentment here. And now, secondly, inordinate longing to get rich will ruin and destroy you. Paul says in verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
That is quite a mouthful, and Paul uses very graphic language here. Now, what is condemned? It's the desire, a consuming desire to be rich. That's what's being condemned. It's not owning material things. It's not owning a house. It's not having material things, but it's having this consuming desire that will not be satisfied in your longing to become rich. That's what's being condemned here. So, first of all, don't live with covetous desires. And here, I think it really ties in with our last sermon at the end of verse 5, that those suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They really have a longing to become rich, these greedy heretics. And yet it applies to us all. And and if you look here in the text, for those who want to get rich, fall. And there's really two main themes, what follows in verse 9 and then in verse 10. Those who want to get rich, fall. He uses very striking language here. And we need to examine our own hearts where are our own hearts? Do, are we finding seeds of discontent? Are we finding seeds of greed? Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, I commend that to you to read this afternoon, the second half of the, the chapter. But who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? We can't add anything to our life. and We need to beware that we're not grumblers and complainers. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the children of Israel wandering around the wilderness, right? And how God was not pleased with them because they were grumblers and complainers. One of the Puritans said that discontent and grumbling are as though man were proposing a better model and form to God of how he should rule and govern the world and the universe. It's folly. To grumble under any circumstance is to complain before God. Well, let's look at the text here. But those who want to get rich fall. Now, let's talk about this word fall. Fall is the idea of literally just stumbling into something, falling into something like a fire pit, like around the campfire. Sometimes when we're camping, we have a campfire and the kids are playing and getting dark and the last thing you want to see is a over a rock and boom into the fire right that's the idea of this word but it's used figuratively here obviously and it means to experience something suddenly to to be beset by something suddenly it's the same word that's used in the parable the good samaritan that the man fell into the hands of robbers it's also used in Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, it's, it's, it's something to experience something suddenly and to be beset by it. <clears throat> so, in this verse 9 here, they fall into three things and then we're going to see a result. It's a temptation, it's a snare, and then harmful and foolish lust, and then the result is that they're plunged into ruin and destruction. Covetousness leads to foolish desires and ends in destruction. He says those who want to get rich fall, first of all, into temptation. They fall into temptation. They're tempted. They're tried. And then it says a snare. And what is that? That's a trap, isn't it? Uh, you, You know what a snare is. You know what a trap is. They fall into a trap. 
And, and it means here to, to uh, figuratively that that which causes one to be suddenly endangered and unexpectedly brought under the control of a hostile force. Now think about that for a minute. Picture the scene, kids. You're, you're catching a squirrel. You're out in the woods. You've got a big wooden crate. It's propped up by a stick with a string on it, you know, and you're hiding over there in a bush. You've, you've put the little food trail of food, maybe little nuts, and you lead it right underneath the box. And you're waiting for that squirrel to come, right? And you're waiting. You're like, there he is. And you're being quiet. And, of course, what's the squirrel doing? He's just, he wants more. He wants more. And he just keeps eating. And he ends up under that box. And you go, boom. The box comes down. And that squirrel's caught. He has suddenly come into this unexpectedly brought under the control of a hostile force, being you, the hunter. And that's the idea. That's the imagery here. They fall into a snare. They fall into a trap that they cannot easily get out of. And that squirrel's going to run around in circles and bang into the side of that box. But he's not going to lift a five-pound wooden box and get an escape, is he? He is ensnared. He is trapped. The same imagery could be uh, given of a, of a mouse. You've got the fresh Swiss cheese right on the little spiky nail, and you've set the trap, and there it is. And here comes the little mouse just scurrying around, and bam! He's caught. He's suddenly ensnared. And that's what those who have this consuming, sinful desire to become rich, they fall in temptation and suddenly they're trapped and they can't escape. The third thing that it leads to is many foolish and harmful desires. These desires, that's the word that's translated lust, usually has a negative connotation to it. And this is a desire for something forbidden and inordinate. A folly, it's folly to have this consuming desire to get rich. One man said that gold is like seawater. The more one drinks of it, the thirstier he becomes. Uh, very clear imagery there of how gold and silver does not satisfy. Christ is more precious than silver, as we sung earlier. When you desire to get rich and you have this consuming desire and you're ensnared, there's usually many other sins associated with it, isn't there? There's certainly the, the sin of, of desiring honor, uh, power, uh, maybe a life of ease like the fool in Luke 12. Um, Envy, envying others that have more than you. There's always going to be somebody that has more than you. And, and all of this really springs from a heart of discontent, a heart of selfishness and pride. And so you're discontent until you can gain these types of things. The sinful desire uh, has been the cause of innumerable frauds and crimes and lies and thefts and wars and even murder. Listen to Hendrickson in his commentary. He says this, As a snare keeps an animal imprisoned, so the unbridled passion for wealth fastens its clutching tentacles on those who desire earthly riches. Remarkable imagery here. Fastens its clutching tentacles on those who desire riches. Well, the result Paul tells us here is that which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The word plunge here literally means to drown all the way to the bottom of the sea. So it's a boat that's not just bobbing or sinking. It's at the bottom of the sea. Or you, you yourself, you're drowned. But figuratively here again, 
um, as many of these Greek words in these epistles, it means to cause someone to experience disastrous consequences, to plunge. And isn't that what's happening here? Those who desire, who wish, is the, is the word, who, who really wish to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which ultimately plunge men to ruin and destruction. John Trapp has said that a ship partially filled with silver unto sinking has room for ten times more silver. So is covetous man. Though he have enough to sink him already, yet he never has enough to satisfy him. So here, this covetous man is drowning. He's completely submersed in in the sea of his extreme greed for wealth. And in the words here that Paul uses are very strong words. Into what? Ruin and destruction. The idea to incur loss and even the ultimate loss. Um, speaking of body and soul, ruin tends to speak more of body. Destruction speaks more of soul. If you look at the concordance, it's a picture of total devastation is what Paul's trying to get across here. Instead of gain which they were seeking, of course, talking about the greedy heretics in verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. Instead of that gain, men's hearts are only set on riches and they experience total devastation. Isn't that what we saw in Acts 8 last week? Do you remember when we looked at that? Simon, where he wanted this power to bestow the Spirit. And what did Peter say? May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see in you the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. This is a warning to many of us. We need to examine ourselves. Are we preoccupied with riches? Do we, do we see the dreadful progression here that Paul is setting forth, this progression of desiring the wrong thing and then losing your footing and falling into something and then next being ensnared so that you can't escape? And lastly, the sinful cravings plunging into destruction must examine ourselves lest we be ruined also. Think of this past week. Think of the past month, if you have to think of the past month. Think of what you have spent your time on. What, what, what do you have a passion about? How do you spend your time? What, what pursuits do you have? What consumes your life? What about your thought life? What you're thinking about? Yeah, you know, you can be outwardly working at the market or whatever you're doing, but your mind is just going somewhere else. What, 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 what consumes our thoughts is the question we need to ask ourselves. Why do we do what we do? What do we spend our money on? You know, it's, it'd probably be very revealing to look at somebody's credit card statement and check register because you learn a lot about a person about how they spend their money, don't you? These are things that we need to examine ourselves, ask ourselves. Could it be that we could stumble? Could it be that we could be ensnared and in that trap trying to escape, but it's too late, and now we're being plunged to the very bottom of the sea of our own greed, 
Oh, how we need to root these seeds out. And oh, how there's hope in the gospel. How there's hope in coming back to the very basics and finding your satisfaction in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Feasting on His Word. Saying, more of Christ. More of Christ. Well, in verse 10, Paul says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In many ways, he's saying the same thing with different language here. And we've already talked about the, uh, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The word sorts is not in the Greek. The translators supply that because it's obvious that that's what it means. All does not mean all, all the time, does it? Remember when we were in chapter 4? Turn back to chapter 4. Just point this out for you so you can make this connection. In verse 10, we looked at this a couple months ago, and it says, For this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Well, does he mean every single person is going to be saved in that text? Of course not. What it means is all sorts of men, and the word especially can be translated, that is, believers. Those are the ones that are saved. And so that's the grammar lesson for today. So back to what we're talking about here. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So much evil comes from loving money. In fact, Christendom um, says this, he says, take away the love of money and you put an end to war and battle and to enmity and strife and contention. Take away the love of money and so many things, so many strifes and contentions that you see in this world will vanish. <clears throat> Turn back to Second Samuel chapter 12 with me. I'd like to look at some biblical examples that we have here. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 12, the context, of course, is David has just sinned greatly with his sin with Bathsheba. And in chapter 12, and verse 1, Nathan comes to rebuke David. And he does so in a very clever way by telling this little story. He says this, follow along with me, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Of course, you know the story. David's anger burns greatly against this man. And of course, says this man deserves to die. That's the picture of the rich man. He's got herds and herds and herds, but he's so greedy that he's going to steal from the poor man. Consider Judas as well. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrays the Lord of glory. But at one minute, maybe at one moment in Judas's mind, 30 pieces of silver just seemed like a life of content. And yet when he had those, how long did he even have them? Very short amount of time and he throws them down and he's grieved and hangs himself. The Bible says that some by longing for it, 
Now this word longing is the word in chapter 3 and verse 1, those who aspire to be an elder. It's a stretching forth of one's hand. It's as though I'm trying to reach that hymn board and I'm stretching forth. That's the force of the word here. Some by longing for it have what? Wandered away from the faith. We have once again another picture of apostasy. We saw it in chapter 4, verse 1. When he says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines. Of course, by the time, two years later, when Paul would write 2 Timothy, his co-worker Demas, he says in 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Wandering away from the faith. What a danger. Stretching out for riches, having these desires consumed, and how they can plunge men into destruction. And then here, wandering away from the faith, and he says, and pierce themselves with many griefs. Pierce themselves with many griefs. This word for pierced is amazing. It means to impale. It's one lexicon put it that it's, it's to put on a spit. It's like when you roast a 100-pound pig and you, you drive a stake all the way through him and he's slowly roasting over the fire. That's what, that's what happens when those who long after riches, they wander away from the faith and it's as though they skewer their very own souls. And the result here is that they have many griefs. Isn't that what the psalmist says? He says, for many are the sorrows of the wicked, skewering themselves. Stretching out after riches. This is speaking of ultimate grief and everlasting torment in hell. This is very sobering. It's graphic language. And I think this many of grief, and as the psalmist says, many of the sorrows of the wicked, is that your conscience will bear witness that what you have done was wrong and violated the holiness of God. Jesus uses the very strong words in Mark chapter 9 that where the worm dieth not... And what is that worm? That worm is your conscience condemning you. Yes, you knew better, and yet you sinned. You forsook the Lord. You walked away from the Lord. You didn't repent, whatever. And that worm gnaws continually as your body lies in flames of fire. The agony that will be there, the gritting of the teeth, the, 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 the very vivid language that we have. It's as though those that are not in Christ or those that are wandering so far from Christ, they're going to prove themselves to be apostates, that they never were in Christ, are on the brink of eternity, on the edge of a pit, and the flames are there, and the smoke's coming up, and there's nothing holding them but the mere pleasure of God and His common grace. And this word fall is very vivid here. One stumble and you're in the pit. Oh, how we need to repent. How we need to be sure that we're in Christ. How we need to come to Him. Renewing our repentance if we're in Christ. Examining ourselves. Rooting out sins. Finding our satisfaction in Him. Well, let's draw a couple concluding applications. First of all, riches can never satisfy. And if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you know this. It's just a false perception that somehow money can satisfy and bring happiness. It's a false perception because we see it 
through the, the television programs and movies and we, we hear it, the billboards, it's all telling us the same story, trying to conform us into this world. We have to maintain this pilgrim mentality. We, if you find your security and riches, it is nothing but an idol that will let you down. A lot of people have been let down, maybe in the last few years, thinking, wow, I could almost retire now. Maybe in my 40s, maybe in my 30s, you know, because my 401k is doing so well. And if it keeps growing at that rate, and after all, I flipped three or four houses and I've got a half a million. This is the mindset of the average American. I can be like that fool in Luke 12. Kick back, take your ease, soul, eat, drink and be merry. It's a false perception. And I'm thankful that Americans in some ways are waking up. Of course, we have a government that wants to keep handing out and handing out rather than let people suffer the consequences of their foolish decisions. But still more than ever, in recent years, Americans are thinking more about thrift and thinking more about maybe this life isn't just you spend, 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 even if you don't have it. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let me repeat that. You cannot serve God and wealth. You will despise the one and love the other. You can't walk the fence. I've read of several men and their misery at the end of their life. Men that became wealthy. They strove to be rich and they became rich and they died unhappy. Listen to this. Henry Ford, okay, you know who he is? He says, I was happier doing mechanics work. Just being a man, just working, you know. Um, listen to this. Years ago, there was a rich man that committed suicide in New York. He had $30,000 in his pocket along with the letter. And listen to what the letter said. I have discovered during my life that piles of money do not bring happiness. I am taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary workman in New York, I was happy. Now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and prefer death. That's striking. That's striking. These are people that are trying to find their happiness outside of Christ in mammon that perishes. We must strive for a biblical contentment. Don't tolerate grumbling and discontent. When you see those seeds, uproot them. Pull them out of your heart. Seek to be satisfied with, with more of Christ, not earthly possessions. And as I said, the antidote to covetousness is generosity and we're going to see this in two weeks, verses 17 to 18. But verse 18 of chapter 6 says, Instruct them, those who are rich, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. That's the mentality that we need to have. The writer of the Hebrews says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever leave you. Can you say with John Wesley in that wonderful hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in Thee I find. Can you really say that? That that's all you want. You want Christ 
And He's the one that's going to bring satisfaction to your very soul. You know the emptiness of the things of this world. They may bring a temporal pleasure, but they will not bring lasting treasure. I'd like to read to you part of a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which I commend to you as well. Listen to this. Heavenly Father, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty, make my heart prize thy love. Know it by con- be constrained by it, though I be denied all blessings. It is thy mercy to afflict and to try me with wants, for by these trials I see my sins, and I desire severance from them. Let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, and temptations, if I can thereby feel sin as the greatest evil and be delivered from it with gratitude to thee, acknowledging this as the highest testimony of thy love. Teach me to believe that if I ever would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must invite Christ to abide in the place of it. He must become to me more than vile lust has been, that his sweetness and power and life may be there. When I am afraid of evils to come, comfort me by showing me that in myself I am dying condemned wrench, but in Christ I am reconciled and I live. That in myself I find insufficiency and no rest, but in Christ there is satisfaction and peace. That in myself I am feeble and unable to do any good, but in Christ I have the ability to do all things. How some of us here, and most of you I know, are in Christ. But we can struggle with these things, can't we? How we need to go back to our first love. How we need to go back to Him. Seek more of Christ in His Word. Seek seek Him in prayer and using all the means of grace. The fellowship of the brethren. The private prayer life. Private reading of the Scriptures. Listening to sermons. Being involved in the lives of others. How we need to cry, More love to Thee, O Christ. That's our great need. And as we have more love to Him... We are satisfied with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word and even the the strong language that we have here before us that Paul has recorded for us. Lord, we pray that You would help us to apply these things, that we would examine ourselves. Lord, that You would be pleased to help us to grow in this area. Lord, that we would find our satisfaction in You, in You alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.